Take your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. We are going through this book verse by verse. We're in chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. We uh, are reading a book that was written to believers that are being scattered because of persecution. The Roman government's been coming down hard on killing Christians, imprisoning them. And so uh, Peter writes this book as encouragement. Let's all stand as we take a look at our passage. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Lord, these seem like impossible words to follow, and yet we trust that you wouldn't have them here unless you also gave us the resources to put them into action. And so we ask for your continued grace in our lives and power that that can be so. And Lord, I pray that you'll continue to make Christ Community Church a holy church. And I mean that in the best sense, not in a religious cultural sense, but in the sense that the Bible uses the term that our actions, our thinking would be separate from the cultures and that we would live lives that uh, resemble the character of God. So make that so in us. We open our hearts, we open our church up to your edifying, to your correction, your encouragement to make this so. We love you and thank you for the opportunity to meet. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher this morning. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul starts with, therefore. In other words, because of the truths that I have talked about in your salvation being imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, because of the objective world facts that God has used, along with supernatural elements so that the prophets and the apostles could bring to you the gospel and the word of God. And because of your faith being uh, tested in trials, allow me to give you some specific application, action I want you to follow. This is what therefore is there. I'm not going to say it for, but all all right. All right, notice what he does not say. He does not say, follow your instincts. He doesn't say, follow your passions. Follow the little voice inside of you. He says, prepare your mind for action. This is not hypothetical. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is not some discussion of theology in your local bar. This is putting on the shoulder pads to get into the game. And you start with right 
thinking. This is not a dichotomy between theology and action. But because of the theology in the first 12 verses of this chapter, now I want you to do this. This is what he talks about for the rest of this chapter in the book. This is not dissimilar from the Apostle Paul when he wrote a book like Ephesians where the first three chapters are, is this glorious truths of who we are in Christ and in theology, and the last two or three chapters are injunctions or actions that we're to follow because the theology is true. Preparing for action basically means a conscious decision that we are going to be obedient disciples, followers. Proverbs 23.7 says, a man follows what he thinks. Romans 12.2 says we have to transform our minds to do the will of God. We have to change the way we think. Quit thinking the old ways. Think these new ways. Think on truth. The implication, I think, is that there are cultural and personal temptations and distractions that cause our minds to get away from the obedience of Christ. It's similar to Paul telling the Ephesians to put on the armor of God, to put on the belt of truth. All right, so a man would have a robe or a toga on, and if he had strenuous work or labor that he had to do, he either had to hold the robe in one hand or wear a sash or belt around the robe to tie up the robe so then he could continue with his strenuous activity. The English equivalent of the phrase would be, roll up your sleeves, take off your jacket so you can get the work done. Peter is saying we have to ready ourselves for strenuous activity. So we can't be content with flabby or unexamined faith. To set your mind on action, I think in this context, means to follow the truth. Now the sad thing is, there are a lot of people that are active in religious circles even, but not for the truth. Cults can be active, but for the wrong reasons. We are to demand that truth claims be backed by valid propositions. You know, in listening to other people communicate, whether it's a news interview, a podcast, or even sermons, I look for how the speaker is asserting the truth and if he's backing up the truth claim that he or she is making. And the fact is, there are a lot of naked claims. And then there's an inference, and then there's a clear biblical principle but many make just a naked claim. They say it boldly, they say it loudly, they even say it persuasively. They even tack on some Bible verses, and that would convince some, specifically if there are a religious authority standing behind a pulpit in a church. And when they quote the Bible, you assume that it's truth. But I'm here to tell you, it doesn't necessarily make it so. And you're not to take every word I say as truth. I want it to be, right? 
but you are to engage your minds. And just because I'm standing here before you and I have my Bible open and I even say this is truth doesn't make it so. I hear people purport doctrines and even hear teachers say, this is what the Bible clearly says. And people will nod their heads in agreement, but it's not truth because there are no clear biblical propositions that support it. We are to strive for a truth that has clear biblical support that's consistent with the context. Know what you believe. Stay consistent with that. This is not to say we're to be bullheaded and never change because sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes I get it wrong. And hopefully we are humble enough to say that, all right? We're not just left to our own passions. We have an objective truth in the word of God to align our thinking with. And that's what we call a biblical worldview. Now this was written by Peter to people being persecuted. Just think of that for a second. Why would he write that to them? Because I think when we're suffering, there are multiple temptations to cause our faith to falter. Remember I gave the illustration a couple weeks ago of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was put in prison. John the Baptist announced Jesus as the Messiah. He's the one to come. He was in prison for a year, and during that time, his emotions and mind were playing tricks on him, and he began then to ask the disciples, is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he really the one to come? What does that tell us? It tells us that often suffering can erode our clear thinking. It doesn't have to, but I think a lot of times we are victims to that. So Peter's audience was under persecution, and he wants them to gather up the belt of truth to stay aligned to the clear propositions of the word of God. And then Peter adds, you're to be sober-minded, The word, of course, is used of a a man who's not under control of a strong drink. The idea in this context is that we're not to be under the influence of another worldview or perspective so that you compromise truth. In other words, think seriously about your positions, about your actions, so that it aligns with God's will, especially when suffering, when We are prone to want to escape the pain. Or I've talked to many people who think now because they have gone through a difficult time, now they have the right to indulge the flesh. But instead we're to be sober-minded. Remember the suffering that Peter talks about is not the surface level of, you know, people making fun of you ridiculing you, laughing at you. Certainly that took place there with Peter, but it was much more than that. Peter's addressing people who lost their jobs, lost their homes, lost loved ones to death because of persecution from the Roman government. And they themselves are under the threat of death, which is why they had to scatter. 
So this was the type of, of pain that does not go away with a cliche or positive thinking. This is the kind that leaves scars. This is the kind that when you rewind the tape in your head, tears come, even though it's years ago, because the pain is so acute. So here's the question. How are you to have hope in that circumstance? He says it. In fact, he says, to set your hope fully. It means to be all in. Verse 13 says, hope that becomes an anchor to be squarely placed upon the person of Christ and the grace that will be fully yours when you see him again. Well, what this tells us is our hope is not on improving our lot upon the earth. It's not some deal I made with God that because I obey him, now my life is going to be easier or better here on earth. That's not what it means. Our hope is not a circumstance, but a person. You know, it's no secret that depression, and suicide have gone decidedly up during COVID. Hope has been on short supply. It's been even misplaced. Consider the disciples who did not fully understand that there was a difference between the first coming of Christ and the second coming. Because in the first coming, they were expecting all the things that the second coming would bring. They were expecting to be delivered from sin, delivered from Rome, kingdom set up, Jesus military leader, full guns blazing, we're home, babe. That wasn't it. That was the second coming. Christians today often feel that life should provide all that the second coming delivers. Now, you know, freedom from sin, all the rewards now. And what this will do is set us up for confusion and great disappointment. And listen, I know that there are those who teach that life is going to be a whole lot easier, great blessing, and there will be blessing and reward now, but it's just a taste. It's just a smidgen of what we'll appreciate and experience in heaven. We're not to forget our first chapter of salvation when the grace of God was poured out upon us in conversion, or quit looking to the future chapter that we have in Christ. We experience grace when we come to Christ, and when we see Christ at his second coming, he'll be revealed in fullness of power, and he'll reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. Greater blessings are in store for the Christian when Christ comes a second time. It's why Titus, in Titus 2.13, it says that we have, at Christ's return, a blessed or happy hope. The church is described as a bride waiting for her husband in 2 Corinthians 11.2. It's like an engaged couple waiting to get married. The depth of, of relationship, connection, fellowship, and worship will satisfy the soul beyond any earthly experience. And if I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. You know, you've heard the statement, so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Peter's saying, be so heavenly minded that it increases your faithfulness on earth. It motivates you on earth. You continue to endure on earth. Jesus preparing a new home for us. You know, we've lived in a different home for the last two and a half years, put a lot of work into it, right? We enjoy the home. We had a good builder too, right? Sitting right here. <laughs> but let me tell you something. Imagine what it's going to be like with Jesus as our next builder. Imagine what that abode is going to be like. And he comes over to your place as a guest, and we fellowship in the most satisfying relationship imaginable. Philippians 3.21 says we get a, a new body as well. It's reiterated in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53. One outfitted without sin, outfitted for eternity, without the effects of age or death. You know what I'm going to appreciate? The future home with Christ. No more division. No more abuse. No more misunderstanding. No more persecution. No more war. Thank God, no more politics. No more pandemics. No more mass. No more shots. No more medicine. No more insurance. No more social security. No more hospitals. No more rest homes. No more car wrecks. No more pollution. No more crying. No more lying, no more crime, no more adultery, no more divorce. You looking forward to that? I sure am. You see now why Peter says you can live with a marvelous hope? Listen, I can depend on that and have confidence in that because God promises it. And again, I go back to, did he raise Jesus from the dead? Yes, he did. Then I can believe what he's going to do here. Has he worked in my life and saved me from sin? Yes, he has. So I can believe what he's going to do in the future. We should live every day with this marvelous hope. One author said, life with Christ is an endless hope. Without him, a hopeless end. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Wow. Not many want to admit that they're in ignorance. But when we are enslaved to our passions, that's where we're at. But we're to live like a child to an obedient parent. Obedience is an indicator that our inclinations have changed from being in bondage to self to now wanting to obey the will of Christ. We have a choice what to believe and what to do. We're not animals. 
we're not dogs. So I have an urge to do something, a passion or instinct to do something. I don't have to do that. God has given me the equipment to say no to that. Being in Christ, we have what we need to submit to the will of God. You know, suffering has a way of clarifying these things. Suffering has a way of erasing our confidence within human strength. Suffering gets us down to the nub. And I like what is in Hebrews 11, that what is faith? Uh, you, can, you can throw all your theology on it, all your eschatological charts upon it, but the writer of Hebrews says faith is believing that he is, and that he, he is a rewarder to those who seek him. That's down to the nub. I believe that he exists, because sometimes that's all I know. Because I've gone through so much crap, I don't know if I can go another foot. But I believe that he is. And I believe his promises are good that he'll reward those who seek him. That's faith. And that's what we have to live with. In 1981, Stuart McAllister was part of a mission whose primary task was to help the church in Eastern Europe by transporting Bibles, uh, hymn books, Christian literature to believers. On one occasion, while trying to cross the border uh, from Austria into what was then communist-led Czechoslovakia, Stuart and his colleagues were arrested, thrown into prison after guards discovered their cargo. While they didn't have an idea how long they would be staying, they ended up staying only two weeks, Stuart's empty time and restricted space began to bring to surface feelings, questions, doubts, and in such circumstances, Stuart writes, we are forced to face what we mean when we speak of faith. Do we have to believe in spite of the evidence to the contrary? Do we believe no matter what? How do we handle the deep and pressing questions of our minds bring us our expectations in reality when they do not match? For me, in my time in prison, I expected God to do certain things and do them in a sensible way in time. I expected that God would act fairly quickly and I would sense his intervention my reading of scripture, my grasp of God's promises, my trust in the reliability of God's word, the teaching I'd received and the message I'd embraced had led me to expect certain things in a particular way. When this did not occur in the way I expected or in the timing that I thought it should, I was both confused and angry. Since I've never given any conscious thought to worldviews in general, or mine in particular, I was unaware how many unexamined assumptions I was living by. I did not realize how little change had penetrated my heart. And under pressure, the gaps were painfully revealed and felt. From the perspective of time, I cannot answer these questions meaningfully, but I needed the experience of doubt and hardship to show me how much I did not know or was not rooted in the biblical answers to these core questions. A worldview that merely answers questions intellectually is insufficient. It must also meet us existentially where we have to live, end quote. 
See, when you, when you lean upon it in those darkest of times, this is when you know what your faith is made of. The desires is contrasted in the lives of Abraham and Lot. Abraham had the eyes of faith on the heavenly city, had no interest in the world's real estate, but Lot had tasted the pleasures of the world in Egypt, gradually moved towards Sodom. Abraham brought blessing to his home, Lot, judgment. Outlook, determined outcome. During Super Bowl Sunday, this is a great transition, 1.4 billion chicken wings will be consumed. That's enough to circle the earth three times. Craziness. Over 11 million pounds of potato chips. 14 billion, with a B, burgers. I had to go back and read that again and make sure that was a B, and it was. So if it's on the internet, it has to be true. <laughs> it's no wonder that an acid goes up 20% <laughs> during this time, and 1.5 million people call in sick to work tomorrow. The Super Bowl is really a great example of our appetites. But you know what? Our culture loves to say yes to anything our passions tell us, right? Not just food, sex, possessions. In fact, you're a dinosaur. You're a prude if you don't say yes to every desire. In fact, your desires define who you are, according to the world's thinking. Dominated by desires. And you know, when you read the record of when Christianity began to grow and thrive, the world was the same then. There was desperate poverty at the lower end of the social scale. At the top, we read of banquets that cost extravagant amounts. Peacock brains and nightingales' tongues were served, and where Emperor Vitilius sat on the table at one banquet, 2,000 fish and 7,000 birds. How do you fit that on the table? Chastity was forgotten. One writer spoke of a woman who had reached her 10th husband. Juvenal wrote of a woman who had eight husbands in five years. Jerome tells us that in Rome there was one woman who was married to her husband, to her 23rd husband, herself being his 21st wife. Both in Greece and Rome, homosexual practices were so common, they were just accepted as normal. See, now I say the world's not much different. As the world mastered, by desire. People are trying to find wilder ways of gratifying its lust. This is our world. Only we use chicken wings, not peacock brains. 
Verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Holiness is not a virtue that we can expect the world to embrace, to understand. That's going to be way too weird. And frankly, it's a slippery word even for Christians. Many interpret the term based upon their religious upbringing. Strict cultural standards, you know, don't smoke, don't go to movies, don't drink. If you have those, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but that's not the definition of holiness, right? Hope you understand that. And there's no direct relationship with Scripture on those things, right? However, as believers, we are to prize holiness, thrive for holiness, because it's consistent with God's character. He's the model and source of holiness. There's no way to understand holiness apart from God, right? I've taught a class in ethics for over 20 years, and when it gets to talking about if there's any objective morals in the world, if there are any absolutes, philosophers and ethicists have tried to pin that on something without God, but it can't be done. In other words, you have to have a God in order for any kind of absolute or a morally objective world to exist. As Samuel Lucas wrote, the essence of true holiness consists in conformity to the nature and will of God. And so our lives are to reflect this holiness. And thankfully, we are not left to our own definitions or just our own denominational slant. The word means separate. It has the idea that as we resemble God's character, we are separated from our own fleshly passions and we are separated from the world's ideology, lifestyle, and worldview. God is sinless and blameless, and we are to reflect that in our lives. D.L. Moody spoke to the point that we don't have to announce our holiness to others, which is a habit that a lot of Christians want to make sure others know how holy we are, what we're doing to attain to holiness. But he said, it's a great deal better to live a holy life than to talk about it. Lighthouses do not ring bells and fire cannons to call attention to their shining. They just shine. Pascal wrote, the serene, silent beauty of a holy life is the most powerful influence in the world next to the might of the Spirit of God. Holiness is not meant to be merely a, a matter of our theology or simply words in a song. It's to be lived out in our daily lives. So the holiness of God is, is the pattern for holiness and the reason for holiness. Maybe this comes into focus when we realize what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 51. Remember, 
had committed adultery, had then murdered the husband of the woman he had the adulterous affair with. Guilt began to come upon him, and in Psalm 32, we, we read of his confession. But in the, in the bullseye of Psalm 51, he has the familiar words, against you and you only have I sinned. Understand this, that when we sin, and by the way, can I get agreement? We're all sinners. We all sin. Okay, I'm not pointing the finger. I'm saying here. Well, sometimes I point the finger, but I, I'm, I'm in the same boat you are, right? I, I have sinned, so I'm not up here saying I'm, I'm sinless. But when we sin, we don't sin against a creed. We don't sin against an institution. We don't sin against just an expectation. We don't sin just against a rule. We sin against God. And he takes that personally. Now, when, when our kids were in our home and we tried to, you know, lay down the law on some things and said, you know, I don't want you doing this or this, and then they, in rebellion, did it, often words that I would use is, I am very disappointed because I asked you to do this, and when you, when, you, when you didn't, you're basically telling me, you know, screw you. Is that what you mean to tell me? Because that's the message I'm getting. And then it's like put into clear light. Well, no, I didn't mean to say that. Well, who gave you that thing to do? I did. So it's an offense to me. And so God has laid out for us these injunctions in the word of God, his will, and when we purposely don't follow it, we sin against him. You know, I, I think also some Christians surmise holiness as a useless goal. I could never reach perfection, so therefore, you know, uh, why even try? Well, listen, I've seen in a movie Brad Pitt without his shirt on. I will never look like Brad Pitt, right? <laughs> You're saying, duh, right? Okay. But that doesn't mean that I don't do what I can do to be healthy or what I can do to stay in shape because I'll never look like that. So there is still a desire for holiness. God is my example. The word is hagias for holy. It means different. The temple is hagias because it's different from other buildings. The Sabbath is hagias because it's set apart from other days. And the Christian is hagias or holy because he or she is different from other people. And the Christian is God's possession set apart from the other people on the earth. And he has chosen for us a task unique for his people, a purpose unique for his people, a destiny unique for his people. And that task is laid upon all of us as Christians. 
you know, I know that the, the idea for some people of holiness is, is, you know, don't touch that. Don't do that. And it's all a list of don'ts. And this is really the epitome of the Pharisees' view, right? Which is why they got so upset when Jesus was, you know, in a dinner with other, quote, sinners, all right? But what's cool about Jesus is that he makes unclean things holy. He redeems. You know, and it strikes me that when grace and holiness collide, it's going to cause us to be uncomfortable, even to the point of maybe judging another person who comes through the doors and is like, ah! But you don't judge because you realize, wait a minute, that's a person in process. That's a person seeking God. And I'm a sinner too, and I'm in process, right? Holiness is not easy. But as a church body, we yearn for everybody to be in that process, to be loved, to know God's grace. But it's not easy. D.A. Carson said, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline uh, of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and dilute ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. End quote. So may we all welcome the Spirit of God's work in our life that tilts us towards holiness. And may that be our passion as a church and as individuals. Not so we can look creepy, but so we can be holy. Let's pray.